I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Hello, it's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Dr Alid Eirig, who I've known for many years from the days when he was Head of News at BBC Wales. He's made the trajectory from being a journalist to being an academic, and he's just published a book about opposition to the First World War in Wales. First of all, Aled, give us a bit of your background. Whereabouts in Wales are you from? Well, uh, I was born in London, as you can guess. Uh, I'm a Cockney, born in Myland Hospital. But my parents were from Wales, and I was taken back to Wales, although obviously I hadn't lived there before. Um, when I was five, we moved to uh, Montgomeryshire, a place called Sambremeyer, and then uh, when I was nine, we moved down to Swansea to Morriston, where my father was the minister in Tabernacle, which is the Cathedral of Nonconformity, as it's called, uh, the biggest chapel in Wales. And then we moved to Swansea itself, to Sketty Road. My mother was uh, an actress, professional actress. They'd met in London, and um, she continued with her career when she came back to Wales. Uh, I then went to university in, in Aberystwyth, I uh, then went to London. I worked as a parliamentary researcher with, with David and David Wigley. In fact, um, some people would say I was the only person who could speak to both of them at the same time because they didn't get on politically <laughs> at the time. Um, I also did a master's in urban and regional planning in that period. But my period in Parliament sort of put me off being a politician for life. So uh, I came back to take a, a job as a journalist in ITV and HTV Wales, as was. Worked there for nine years and then went to BBC Wales. And when you were at BBC Wales, you rose to the dizzy heights of being head of news. How were things different then to how they are today, would you say? Well, I was head of news from '92 to about 2004. And we didn't have the internet. We didn't have online news. We were still working using CFAX, believe it or not. So that was interesting. One of the challenges was integrating a newsroom which covered radio, television and two languages. So that was an interesting challenge. And politically, it was an interesting time. It was the time leading up to the devolution referendum, people becoming increasingly disillusioned with government in Wales and not so much uh, an increase in nationalism, but an increase in in the belief that you needed more democracy. So that was an interesting period, and uh, you know, covering that was uh, was fascinating. And I think you had a period when you stepped down from being head of news, and you were then involved in a project relating to the nations and regions. Well, um, I for a period of about three years, um, I, I'd been uh, head of news for ten years, which is more than enough for anybody, I would say. And I, uh, I had the opportunity of working uh, in other parts of the BBC. So one of, uh, one of the projects was the language learning project across uh, Wales, Scotland, uh, Northern Ireland. But perhaps more interestingly, uh, I also did a piece of work uh, developing language policy for the BBC Northern Ireland, which, as you can imagine, was very, very sensitive. And uh, we eventually got there in terms of an agreed um, policy and way forward. But it also meant that I had to deal directly with various people from the unionist and the nationalist communities on behalf of the BBC. So that in itself was very, very interesting, an education for me and possibly an education for them. It's a very 
difficult and sensitive thing, isn't it, dealing with people from uh, Northern Ireland uh, with the, the two communities and trying to get a balance, uh, as we find now. Uh, and the Irish language has actually been uh, one of the reasons why uh, devolution has broken down there. How did you find dealing with uh, both communities? Well, I think one of the issues was the people on the unionist side saw Ulster Scots, which is effectively a dialect of Scots, as something that required a parity of esteem with the Irish language. Now, in arguing that, they also argued that Ulster Scots was a language and, you know, you could... You could have arguments um, similar to sort of talking about angels on pinheads. That wasn't so much the issue I felt. The issue was that they felt that there wasn't a sufficient recognition of the Ulster Scots identity, uh, which I think was a fair enough point, and especially with the BBC. So, you know, we, we encouraged that sort of development as well as an increase in Irish language uh, programming for the BBC. And... Uh, the setting up of a production fund specifically to encourage Irish language production. But I think one of the issues with those sort of issues in um, Northern Ireland is that it's very, very rapidly can come something else if we don't deal, deal with, the, with, the, with the heart of the issue in, in, in the first place. And it's much to do with status. It's the question of parity of esteem, equivalence um, in terms of culture and recognition and identity. So one of the reasons why the talks between the Australian Unionists, DUP in particular, and Sinn Féin uh, fell down was the, was the feeling within the DUP that you know, the Australian identity wasn't being recognised sufficiently and why, therefore, should they recognise the Irish language. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, you had a change of direction in a way, uh, although in a sense you went back to something you'd been doing before to an extent. Uh, you went and worked for David Ellis Thomas when he was a presiding officer. How did you find that change? Well, that, that was fascinating because that was working on the um, separation of the Welsh Government from the Assembly because, absurdly, up till then, and the 2006 um, Government of Wales Act the Assembly and the Government had been one body. Now, just from a journalistic point of view, from a citizen's point of view, how on earth do you scrutinise government if uh, an Assembly, a parliamentary body, is part of the same corporate entity, which is nonsense. So what I, um, what I did in that period uh, when I joined the Assembly, initially for a, a sort of six-month period, was to see how we could implement the Government of Wales Act because, frankly, not much thought had been given to the implications of that act and how, on a practical level, you you could do that. So I I started on that work and then I was asked to stay on and I stayed on till 2011 and the end of um, David Ellis Thomas's uh, period as presiding officer. And you were satisfied with the work that you did then? Well, I don't know, I, I'd leave um, others to decide <laughs> whether one should be satisfied with it. It was very important, I think, because what we did was to set up scrutiny structure through the committees. We weren't responsible for legislation at that stage, but we did ensure that the uh, staff in the Assembly were separated from the civil service in government, so they weren't um, subject to undue influence. We did create a setup whereby we had 
legal advice specifically for the Assembly and the presiding officer not be dependent, as government had wished it to be, not be dependent on Welsh government lawyers. Um, so those sort of elements were very, very important in establishing the independence uh, of the Assembly, and that's something I think we should really value. Now, after you left the Assembly, done quite a bit of consultancy work, but then more recently you've gone to work for the recently established Morgan Academy, which was named after Rodri Morgan. And, of course, when it was named, uh, Rodri was still alive, but um, his name is uh, is, is used to denote uh, the institution. And you've recently been appointed following Helen Mary Jones's election uh, or appointment to the Assembly uh, as the Deputy Director of the Morgan Academy. Uh, so you've made the full transition now from journalist <laughs> to academic. What is the Morgan Academy <clears throat> hoping to achieve? Well, I don't think it's a total transformation because one of the things I hope the Morgan Academy achieves is that it deals with important issues of public policy, what I'd call the wicked issues, that is the issues that very often government and other agencies' bodies find it difficult to discuss publicly but they know they've got a problem with it. For example, things like um, the relationship between health and development and social care. Issues like, for example, uh, nuclear energy, um, energy fracking, legalisation of cannabis use, for example, which is a very, very interesting and difficult subject for many, but I think it's one of those issues that has to be confronted and considered. So it's that sort of role. So I wouldn't say I've sort of turned my back on on the public sphere, I think I'd put it as trying to bring the university, Swansea University, uh, more into the public sphere itself and engage um, and have an impact in terms of a lot of the work it does. Now, bubbling away all this time, and you say in the introduction to your book, which has just been published, which uh, is called The Opposition to the Great War in Wales, 1914 to 1918, that its gestation was as long ago as 1977. And you then say that your two inspirations for this book were your father, who was a conscientious objector during World War Two, and your grandfather, who was a conscientious objector during World War One. Obviously, this has been a theme that has preoccupied you for a very, very long time. Mm. Uh, tell us a little about your... You didn't know your grandfather, you no, never no. met him. But tell us about how your family connection with these two conscientious objectors sparked an interest in the whole issue of opposition to the First World War in Wales. Well, I, I suppose you could say that I come from a serial family of troublemakers, uh, especially working as an investigative journalist in particular, but um, when I initially started work on this, I, I hadn't really sort of really considered it in any sort of um, structured way why I was doing it. And I started by looking at the First World War and really not having much idea of what my grandfather did. I knew of my f- father, who was a conscientious objector, worked on the land and in hospitals in that period which was what you were allowed to do as a conscientious objector. But he very rarely actually spoke about his direct experience. And um, to my shame, I never really uh, asked him either. And then I read a bit more. My grandfather published some books about that period, and in particular 
the um, principal of the theological college he'd been to in Bangor. My grandfather was a conscientious objector in 1916, right at the beginning of the whole system. But he was the author of a book of essays about a chap called Principal Thomas Rees, who was perhaps the leading light in the anti-Roman religious movement in Wales in that period. And that sort of uh, excited my interest. But I started by writing sort of um, a shortish essay in 1977 as part of my um, history course with Dr. Diane Hopkin, who we might come come across uh, later on in the story. And then I thought little of it. I, I didn't have any ambition to be an academic or an academic researcher. I was far more interested in, in real life, as I say. I really didn't turn back to it till about 2010. Because I think in terms of the opposition to the First World War, a lot of people don't realise the extent of the opposition that existed and the the broad spectrum of people who were involved in the opposition. Um, I mean, just anecdotally, I think people are aware that... Um, in the First World War, there was an enormous amount of jingoism around, and there was this business, wasn't there, of women going up to men in the street who had not enlisted. What were they doing? Presenting them with uh, with uh, marks of cowardice, you know, white white flowers or whatever. But in fact, there was uh, a lot of opposition, and you make the point in the book that essentially there were two strands, weren't there? There was the religious opposition and then there was the political opposition. And sometimes they were fused, but uh, there were those who were predominantly religious in their objections to the war and those who had uh, specifically political objections. And um, tell tell us, for example, about this uh, this um, minister T. E. Nicholas, who was oh. one of the leading figures of the uh, of the religious opposition to the war, and uh, got into quite a bit of trouble, and was followed around by police officers, etc. Well, T. Nicholas was a minister of religion who uh, had been in the Swansea Valley before the war, and then had uh, gone to Cardiganshire. He was brought up in Pembrokeshire, not very far from Thomas Rees, the principal of Balabangor, uh, in a place called Llanfernach in uh, Pembrokeshire. Nicholas was a Marxist and a Christian, a religious minister. Isn't that a contradiction in terms? Well, I don't think so, because I think people tend to separate the religious and the political but for many of these men who opposed the war, not just conscientious objectors and people like Nicholas, what they saw was that they had a moral case against war. They saw the war as being capitalist, imperialist, and against the working classes. So the anal- that analysis, which is not just Marxist, but moral as well, that was quite a common uh, analysis on the left within the movement against the war. But Nicholas was a was the greatest propagandist of all, certainly in the Welsh language. He was the editor of the Welsh language section of the Merthyr Pioneer, which was the independent Labour Party paper produced in Merthyr, and which is a very, very important source for recognising or for knowing about the opposition to the First World War, because as a journalist, Martin, you'd understand that many of these newspapers published at the time would uh, reflect the views of their owners, not necessarily what was happening on the street from day to day. I think the, uh, the Western Mail was at the forefront of this, wasn't it? Oh, indeed, the Western Mail was 
was absolutely, yeah, I could tell you a few stories about that as well. But my view is that historians uh, tend to be a bit lazy in interpreting how the war went and haven't really appreciated or haven't described sufficiently the subtleties in the differences and nuances in responses to the war from 1914 through to 1918, depending where you are and what you're doing. So, for example, 1914, there's recruiting, obviously, after the beginning of the war, but it's very, very slow, especially in rural areas of Wales, especially in Welsh-speaking areas. It's only by the end of that year that it starts to pick up and actually peaks in 1915, so it dips after about April-May, which is partly why they had to bring in conscription in 1916, because they were getting desperate for, for men to come into the army. And if you look at the war as a whole, 1914-15 is that sort of period, 1916 is the Somme, and, and the huge realisation across the country of the cost of the war. 1917 is a period of terrible social and economic dislocation, economic crisis, partly uh, caused by uh, the intervention of German submarine warfare and so forth. Um, and although you've got America committing to come into the war, that isn't really seen till 1918. 1917, I'd describe, certainly the summer, I'd describe as one where the uh, government gets very, very nervous about the impact of the Russian Revolution. People see the pop- possibilities of that sort of political action. You've got greater um, pressure for, for an end to the war and um, an increase uh, in the peace movement. And in South Wales in particular, you have the South Wales miners stopping conscription from being introduced in the mining industry for a period from January 1917, which is when the government wanted to introduce it, to November, December 1917, when a ballot is finally held and um, is won by the people who want, want conscription. But that is an indicator, I think, and I describe that in the book, an indicator of the extent of the anti-war movement, how influential it was, certainly in certain areas. And uh, another strand of this is the uh, influence of the independent Labour Party. Could you, for the benefit of listeners who don't realise what the difference is, say what the difference is between the independent Labour Party, often referred to as the ILB, from the Labour Party? Well, in this period, up to 1918, the only way you could join the uh, the Labour Party was through the independent Labour Party as an individual member. So they were very, very um, influential in certain areas um, in Wales. And I'd say those areas where they were most influential were those areas which were perhaps the older industrial areas, like West Glamorgan, Britain Ferry, Port Talbot, uh, Avon Valley, then over to Merthyr and Aberdeer, down to Rumney Valley, um, and uh, the main town, Swansea, Newport and, and, and Cardiff. And they weren't necessarily associated with the coal industry. They were in, um, associated with the tin plate and, uh, and steel industry around the Britain Ferry area, for example, where many of the leaders of the ILP were very, very prominent in the local trade unions. And uh, those people were councillors, chapel deacons, you know, significant um, people who had influence in their, in their own locality. They could come in for quite a bit of stick from the authorities, couldn't they? Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, you describe in the book how there were 
effectively police agents who were going around to public meetings that were being held. I mean, people like Bertrand Russell actually came over to uh, yeah. Wales as well. Yeah. And uh, they were taking copious notes with a view to prosecuting people. Yeah. How much of that was going on? A lot. And um, I mean, we have reports in, uh, in MI5 files in particular of a great deal of monitoring. But there was a, uh, a problem within the security services whereby MI5 and Special Branch felt that the uh, Glamorgan Constabulary under Colonel Lionel Lindsay, who, who was originally from Ireland, who had been in the colonial service in Africa, who frankly uh, treated um, uh, people in South Wales as if they were Kaffirs in, in Africa. That, that was very much his attitude. He was considered to be extreme in his actions and in the um, persecution of anti-war activists. What uh, both MI5 and Special Branch were worried about was that that would exacerbate the um, problem of uh, dissent against the war rather than uh, stop it. So, you know, there are instances documented where Lionel Lindsay recommends uh, prosecution in about 20 to 30 cases and uh, Special Branch and MI5 only agreed to a couple. Um, in fact he tried to persecute T. Nicholas throughout the war and failed at every turn because the well, MI5 in particular thought he, he went too far and would just give Nicholas more, more publicity. One thing that struck me was the fact that uh, whereas uh, we've been well aware there have been stories, there have been pieces of literature which have referred to these individuals who were sentenced to death, but their sentences were actually pretty quickly commuted. Yeah. But one thing that I hadn't really realised was that as many as, uh, I think, um, throughout Britain, 73 uh, conscientious objectors died because of the bad conditions that they endured yeah. in jail yeah. and um, under the control of the military. Yeah. Was there um, quite a vindictive attitude towards these people? Uh, I think there was. Um, I think it got slightly better as the war wore on, but um, seven of those conscientious objectors were from Wales, including the first one to die, Walter Roberts. Dice, Dice in Aberdeen, I think. In Dice in Aberdeen, and um, the, they'd been transferred from prison uh, in the summer of 1916, when the government realised that they just had, didn't have enough room in prisons for all the conscientious objectors, so they decided on a new scheme called the Home Office Scheme. So they were sent to Dice, uh, Walter Roberts, and about 250 other men. They, they were given accommodation in tents that dated back to the Boer War, so they were totally sort of unsuitable. And um, in the weather, um, the rain and so forth, Walter Roberts got a chill, uh, went to see the doctor. The doctor didn't want to do anything with him, and he, was di he died within a couple of days, which is a sad story. And um, I think one of the elements of this is that uh, many of the conscientious objectors were, weren't particularly strong. You know, I mean, they, they might have uh, been able to avoid conscription by pleading uh, ill health or not being strong enough. But, uh, you know, they didn't do that. They went through the process and... Uh, and um, you know, and, and, and took what came to them, really. But the reaction of the authorities was not uniform, was it? Because there no. were some people who were responsible for sending people to jail, even, who did have a degree of sympathy for these conscientious objectors. 
Well, well, there were. Um, even people like, um, I think, Brigadier General Wyndham Childs, who had the job in the army of dealing with conscientious objectors, uh, who absolutely detested them as a class, was very, very admiring of individual conscientious objectors for being so brave and, and standing up for what they believed. Altogether, I think, in Wales, there were about 900 conscientious objectors. 900, that's right, yes. Which I suppose in the great scheme of things is not absolutely enormous, um, but they do have something of a legacy, don't they? Because um, uh, I mean, you write at the end of the book about the political consequences of uh, conscientious objection and generally the, the opposition to the war. And there was a change, not absolutely immediately, because in the 1918 so-called khaki election, yeah. people like T. Nicholas, who stood as candidates, were trounced. Yeah. But then... Come 1922, yeah. I think there's been a bit of a change in perspective yeah. because there was all this stuff about uh, a war to end all wars and land fit for heroes and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And there's quite a bit of disillusionment set in because the returning soldiers did not get the prosperity that perhaps they'd expected and the people expected for them. No, I think that's true. Um, you must remember, the first conscientious objector to be elected as a member of parliament after the war happened in Wales in Caerphilly 1921, where there was a by-election, and that was run by Morgan Jones, who was one of the leading lights of the Independent Labour Party in South Wales. And that's an indicator, I think, of the shifting mood. Um, I think that's partly as well the disillusionment with what happens to people at the end of the war, the promises that were broken. And in respect of the mining industry in particular, which was you know, by far the most significant industry in, in Wales, the decision by government not to follow the Sankey Commission report. And to which was it saying what? And, well, uh, the Sankey Commission report was advocating um, maintaining uh, the coal industry in public hands. The government decided to put it back into private Hands, and that was seen as a as a huge betrayal of um, promises people thought they had from uh, before the end of the war. Uh, and then you get to 1922, and then you have a clutch of uh, members of parliament who have been conscientious objectors or and very active in the anti-war movement, uh, and even the election of George M. S. Davis, who was perhaps the the most um, you know the paragon of Christian socialist values opposed to the war. He became a member of the uh, University of Wales um, in 1923, I think it is, before he, he, he lost the year, and by then he just can't stick Parliament. Mm. So um, I think that part of the, uh, the book or part of the material that uh, um, uh, gets into the book emanated from your doctoral thesis. That's right, yes. So how was your doctoral thesis managed and how did you get to the position where you were able to publish this book? <laughs> I think uh, the way I'd um, put that is uh, that is very much trial and error. So essentially, um, I think the most important and most interesting element was the research, um, which uh, took about three, four years. And then the writing up was far, far more of a, um, is a really difficult process and of course uh, it's one thing we're writing as a journalist but uh, another thing writing as an academic 
uh, and at the same time uh, ensuring that it's comprehensible. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I hope I've done that, and I hope people will, will enjoy what, what I've written. So Dan Hopkin, he was uh, instructor? Dan Hopkin you? was um, a, my tutor in university, and uh, coincidentally he's now become the Tsar, as it were, leading uh, the Welsh Government's response to the commemoration of the First World War. So he's been doing that for four years, so we've been uh, in very close touch on that. And, uh, in fact, we're speaking together at an event in the Temple of Peace on the 21st of uh, November, marking the 100th anniversary of the uh, end of the war. Lovely. Thank you very much indeed, Alid. Thank you, Martin. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week. Thank you.